Welcome back to Dylan Through the Decades, our mini-series that explores the life and music of the one and only Bob Dylan. I'm sick of love, and I'm in the thick of it. In our last episode, we discussed some of Bob's career highs and lows, as he opened the decade with one of the worst-reviewed albums of his catalog, but then closed the decade with one of his best. In between these projects, Bob reunited with his Wilburys buddies, held a massive televised celebration of his past work, and released a pair of acoustic records that brought him back to his roots. As the 90s came to a close, it appeared that Bob had finally righted the ship after two decades of inconsistency. We begin this episode at the dawn of the new millennium, which would provide some smooth sailing for Bob as he opened the 2000s with a strong soundtrack appearance for a film called The Wonder Boys. People are crazy and talks are strange. I'm locked in tight. I'm out of range. I used to care, but things have changed. The release date for Bob's first album of the 2000s couldn't be more infamous. Love and Theft was widely ignored on its debut as the country was reeling from the horrific attacks on 9-11. The aftermath of this saw many artists participating in high-profile fundraisers for the victims, but Bob largely stayed out of the spotlight and eventually resumed his tour. Uncle Sweetheart is organizing a benefit concert. A new gentleman will be paid in full. So why a benefit concert? How else do you get rock stars to do television? You either give them a cause or you give them an award. Bob would partake in a different sort of fundraiser a few years later, when he partnered with director Larry Charles to produce an art house film called Masked and Anonymous, which saw Bob, once again, playing an aging, bitter rock star. But instead of chasing a girl half his age like he did in Hearts of Fire, Bob's role in Masked and Anonymous was to play a fundraiser concert for a post-apocalyptic America. This offbeat film with an ensemble cast would be followed a few years later in 2007 with the release of another, this one called I'm Not There, which was a more direct celebration of Bob's legacy. Multiple A-list actors played the role of Bob in the film, but unlike Masked and Anonymous, Bob himself had nothing to do with it. In between the releases of these films, Bob published the first part of his memoirs and then tried his hand at becoming a disc jockey. But as we start season three, we're going to take our cue from the sign here where yes, Truman kept on his desk. The buck stops here. And not just the buck, but the yen, the shekel, the nickel and dime. And if you're still subscribed to the barter system, maybe a bushel of corn. So break open your piggy banks and cash in your bonds. This week's episode of Theme Time Radio Hour is most definitely cash and carry. Both of these projects served as precursors to his next album, Modern Times, which saw Bob once again returning to the well of traditional American music. This was another hit with the critics, but not without garnering a bit of controversy. If it keep on raining, the living 
Bob closed out the decade with a pair of albums in 2009. The first was called Together Through Life, which continued the hot streak he had started back in 1997 with Time Out of Mind. But the latter caught the public largely by surprise. Although in hindsight, it really shouldn't have. Bob had a new collection of traditional American songs, but this batch would be holiday-themed. Bob's Christmas in the Heart hit stores in the final months of the 2000s, and since then, it's been widely considered a modern Christmas classic. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing and fixing and old as in this episode, my friend Chris and I not only discuss Bob's releases, but we also share our own stories of seeing Bob in concert, buying these albums as they were released, and then we recount a notorious story from Bob's life that has become a bit of a window into Bob's rather eclectic personality. So without further ado, let's dive into the most consistent decade of Bob's career so far. Pour yourself a glass of Heaven's Door whiskey, as over the next hour and change, Chris and I will chronicle Bob's music and stories from that era. This is Dylan Through the Decades, Part 5, Bob Dylan in the 2000s. That makes everything right. Fill your hearts with Christmas cheer. The Santa Claus comes to Well, welcome to our Christmas episode, just two months late. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to do this in the Christmas season, and this is two years in a row that I've learned that trying to do a podcast during Christmas is incredibly self-defeating and uh, a waste of effort, because that time of year is just too crazy. So we're going to do it two months later. There's still some snow on the ground. It's still winter, and it's our Christmas episode because... Today we're going to be getting to Bob Dylan's Christmas album, and I'm going to play some clips from it, so I hope for those of you listening, you're not totally turned off by the concept of just hearing a couple of Christmas songs outside of the Christmas season, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Picking up where we left off, last time we talked about Bob's critical resurgence with Time Out of Mind and his wins at the Grammys with that one. It's definitely a point of his career that he really set in the mid-90s where he was clearly no longer chasing, like, commercial radio hits. Now, that's really good for a lot of his fans. For me, the hardest thing to get over the hump with him was how raspy his voice was on those records, which are really sparse. You know, there's not a lot of instrumentation, especially in the two acoustic records in the mid-90s where it leans so much on his voice. And... Given that just a couple of years before, his voice wasn't at that level, it's a little grating at first. It takes a little time to get used to it. So this is the first era of Dylan that you lived through as an active Dylan fan, right? You know, you were a kid when you saw that Bob Fest 30th anniversary special, but, like, fandom doesn't really become a thing until, like, you're a teenager. Right. And that's what you were in the, in the early 2000s. 
we're going to talk about each of these records and you know what they meant to you as you were actively following Bob at this point. I was not. I don't really come on board until our what we're covering in our last episode (laughs) our finale but that's also because there's a slight age difference between us but okay (laughs) you you wouldn't know to look at us no that's true (laughs) you certainly wouldn't guess (laughs) okay well let's start with the first thing and maybe even the best thing of this whole decade that he did there was a film called the wonder boys was released in 2000 bob contributed to the soundtrack a song called Things Have Changed. People are crazy and times are strange. I'm locked in tight. I'm out of range. I used to care, but things have changed. You mentioned this in the first pod we did as one of your all-time favorite songs of his. I enjoy this song. I really like the music video. I think that's the first music video he like seemed to put some effort into well let's start with this did you see the movie the wonder boys yes good movie it's an awesome movie oh okay so i i as a a kid who was kind of like a literary nerd you know i read a ton middle school high school whatever uh wonder boys was definitely about that it was about uh, a guy who's kind of a washed up writer he teaches like a creative writing class and it I, i think dylan's music perfectly accompanied that as well this this sense of sort of being kind of a wash and like intelligentsia and everything it was it was great okay what do you think of the music video so it's really solid and i don't know if you want to talk about it or me but i would never have noticed the one minute mark thing at the end of it where dylan says i have 60 seconds left before we dear you're nodding what 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 is what, the, what, what is the i heard easy i just don't show it you can hurt someone not even know it. The next 60 seconds can be like an eternity. It, it basically marks a countdown to the end of the song, right? And if you look at the music video, it's yeah. perfectly aligned with the last 60 seconds of the song, which I think is a nice touch. Oh, that, yeah, absolutely. That, that's the sort of thing that, like, it validates the art form of music videos. Because, like, a lot of people think music videos are just crappy commercials. And I don't believe in that. Dylan's music videos all up until this point have struck me as projects he was clearly reluctant or straight up resistant about doing. Like the Joker Man music video is just pathetic because it's like a guy who does not want to be there sneering at the camera where they just superimpose pictures over him. This one is different because it seems like he bought in on the concept and they do that fun thing where like they use clips from the movie they insert bob into scenes from the film for the music video yeah that's fun i usually hate that really <laughs> but i thought they did a really it usually it feels so artificial normally it looks fake they often. did yeah. such a good job with like inserting dylan into those scenes yeah that you don't even notice it yeah and also i should say i verified that that 60 second thing also occurs in the song itself Oh, okay. It's not just relegated to the music video. So he, at some point, maybe Dylan himself decided, like, I'm going to make this statement about we have 60 seconds left. Mm-hmm. And then there's 60 seconds left in the song, which I think is a cool. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a great trick. So strong opening to the 2000s. Just a year after that, he releases his first proper album of the decade, Love and Theft, which was released on September 11th, 2001. Again, we went over this album a little bit in our... Uh, Heaven's Door sampling podcast. 
Uh, you told the story about <laughs> buying this CD on 9-11 and how surreal that kind of was. Let's go over this a little bit again for those who might have missed that. So Bob releases the album on 9-11. This is the first CD of Bob's that you're going to buy on the release date, correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, so you're in high school, you heard about the album, you made a point to go and get it, how'd you go and get it? Yeah, like, I made plans for probably a month ahead of time. Probably, like, and I'm thinking, I probably knew about it from the internet. Mm-hmm. So, at that point, it would have been, like, uh, Net Zero, I think, the uh, free <laughs> dial-up service, you know, with the yeah. ads. Yeah. And it was, like, that was my focus for, like, a month, and then... Of course, 9-11 happened, and I remember, like, getting home and just, like, today, 9-11 notwithstanding, <laughs> I'm driving down to my local Borders, yeah, because it was the closest place that sold CDs. Yeah. I'm picking up Love and Theft. And I did, and I think I thought that there was going to be, like, you know, maybe a run on the Dylan album <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> like, the, you know, the thought was, like, maybe there's, you know, like, hey, boomer Dylan fans right. would be there picking it up. Was there but anyone in the store there was literally at all? nobody in the store. No, it was crazy I was there. The people who were there were like still watching recaps of 9 11, like on like the, like a TV in like the cafe. <laughs> and I show up and I'm like, I'll purchase this CD. And uh, I don't regret it. Great, no, of course not. Album. But it was definitely a bizarre sort of. I remember it very well because of that. You know, after going through his discography in the 90s, which, as I made very apparent in our last episode, did not move me much at all. I was almost sort of dreading this episode and and these records because I thought like, you know, his voice is just going to get worse, you know I haven't even heard of most of these where I had heard of Time Out of Mind at least I'm happy to say that those fears were unfounded because I really liked Love and Theft Uh, right from the first note uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum is one of my favorite songs of his from the decade Tweedledum and Tweedledee They're one day older than a dollar show that was released as the only single. Of course, it did not chart, uh, which is <laughs> the reality of all of his singles yeah. in this part of his career. So there's another one on there called Floater, Too Much to Ask. I like that one, too. It's a great song. Great title. <laughs> Wait, is that a poop joke? <laughs> hey, that's too much to ask. Okay, let's not get <laughs> great. The lyrics are great in that song. I love that song. Yeah. It's a strong album. Any other thoughts on Love and Theft? Didn't mention Mississippi or Summer Days, both, I think, great songs. Okay. I think Mississippi's just lyrically just a beautiful song. That's the second song off the album, I right? So. Yeah, I like that one, too. Got nothing for you. I had nothing before. Don't even have anything for myself anymore. I remember listening to this and thinking it had a very strong opening. I also like things have changed. So right off the bat, the first three songs from him are pretty damn good. So in our last episode, we talked a little bit about Bob's acting career. (laughs) When we dove into... Wait, what is that movie called? Hearts of Fire. Hearts of Fire. Holy shit. Obviously, that left an indelible impact on both of us as we struggled to remember what the name of the movie Yeah, so Hearts of Fire sucks, but it was entertaining in sort of a goofy, have a bad movie night. There's some weird little positives. And I think there were some weird little positives because Bob was playing a role that was like tailor made for him, like a burnt out, bitter old rock star. Yes. 
So he does a similar role in another movie called Masked and Anonymous in 2003. At least a similar role on paper in the sense that he's a burnt-out, has-been old rock star. Very different character, very different kind of movie, and very different impact on you and I. Because you feel pretty strongly about it. I'm lukewarm on it. Let's talk a little bit about Masked Anonymous. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds of the plot, but basically Bob Dylan plays a burnt-out old rock star called Jack Fate. The movie was written by Larry Charles who's most famous for directing Borat, Bruno, and Bill Maher's Religious. So he's an HBO guy. But Bob co-wrote it with him, which makes a little bit more sense because I think this is a movie that could only be made if Bob himself was involved. That said, I did not like this movie very much. You got the money or not? Okay, listen. Uncle Sweetheart is organizing a benefit concert. And you gentlemen will be paid in full. So why a benefit concert? How else do you get rock stars to do television? You either give them a cause or you give them an award. I got so much shit happening, man. I'm gonna turn this here thing into Woodstock, Altamont, and Elvis comeback special. I'll roll in one. Woo! You're so spontaneous. I don't think Sting or Springsteen or Billy Joel or McCartney is going to work out. So now tell me, are we screwed or are we not screwed? I have a surprise for you. You mean to tell me we wind up with Jack Fate? Jack, nobody's more like it. You couldn't get anybody else, could you? It didn't even cross my mind. What are your initial thoughts on Masked and Anonymous? You know, when I saw it when I was younger, I did not love this movie. I will say watching it now, not trying to get political in any way, but it's about a sort of a post-revolution America and sort of the decay of, like, American society. And I kind of like it. And I also think, like, symbolic, there's some stuff where, like, Dylan's, like, the uh, the child of this, like, revolutionary who took over America and basically, like, destroyed society in the process. And he just left, got imprisoned. And I feel like it's kind of a, it's a metaphor for Dylan's relationship with the 60s counterculture. That's how I see it. Do you think that metaphor was intentional from the writing? Or do you think, as it played out, that just ended up, being a happy accident. You know, I think we've talked about this before where it's like, how much is Dylan's stuff intentional? How much is any artist's work intentional in the idea that they're, they're trying to make a specific statement? Do you think it's more relevant, more worth seeing now than it was at the time? Now you got to remember 2003, that's the start of the Iraq war. Like this is the height of the Bush years. It definitely feels more prescient now. Okay. Just what kind of we are at. It doesn't have a straightforward sort of plot. I mean, there really isn't a plot at all other than them just trying to throw a charity concert or something. That's important to bring up because this is absolutely not the same sort of movie as Hearts of Fire. This is a much more cerebral, uh, challenging experience. And maybe that's why it didn't do much for me. Not because I'm any anti-intellectual, just because I felt like if, if you're playing with big concepts, like you have to deliver on all aspects of the film, and there were just some really obvious shortcomings that threw me off. So my problems with this film come down to a lot of the technical aspects, particularly the acting performances. I love the cast. 
Love John Goodman. Love Jeff Bridges. Love Jessica Lange. And you can definitely see in scenes that they are all amped up on their performances because I think they want to, like, impress Bob. And all that does is highlight how truly bad of an actor Bob is because he, despite this being like a passion project, seems to give no effort and is totally flat and it's a less fun performance of him here than in fucking Hearts of Fire. Yeah. In Hearts of Fire, at least there was a couple of funny moments, just little bits. But here it's just nothing. And I bet this project fell into yet another scenario where Bob was surrounded by people who could not get over the fact that they're hanging out with Bob Dylan and kept reminding him of how much they love him. And as we've talked about in each episode so far, Bob hates that. In 2009, Mickey Rourke said, quote, I had a little part in some arty farty movie we did. I've known him for several years, and we talk on the phone. Well, he's not big talking on the phone. Not big talking, period. And recently, in 2020, Mickey also said, We were on the set together one day, and I was just so enamored. I wanted to be friends with him because I really looked up to him. So I just said, Bob, do you go out? Do you want to go out and hit the town? He didn't even look at me. Oh, no, I don't go out. I just said, you don't go out? No, I don't go out. This reminds me of Al Giroux bugging Bob at the Live Aid sessions. Just a celebrity being starstruck and putting that on Bob, which is the one thing that time and again we've seen that he cannot stand. And you would think by this point that reputation would have reached some of these people, right? I mean, don't you think Mickey Rourke would understand how obnoxious that sort of thing is, given his celebrity status? Yeah, and also, I mean, to be fair, like, I also think, and we've talked about this before, Dylan strikes me as somebody who is inherently a very uh, introverted person. That he kind of had the, the spotlight thrust upon him. Yeah. Like, for him, at that point in the game, he's probably just like, I don't see a reason to go out. Yeah. <laughs> you go out? You don't go out? Like, no, I don't go out. You really don't go out? It's like, no, I don't go out. Please. And also, I mean, he's probably looking at Mickey Rourke's face, and he's like, whatever you're, <laughs> whatever you're doing, I don't want any part of it. Shoot. <laughs> You know, it makes me think, why did he then do this movie? Dylan? Yeah, because yeah. you know what makes me, you know what my guess happened? And I this is total projection. I bet he really enjoyed the writing process with Larry Charles. Yeah. And then when filming got started, he realized what that meant. And maybe he had forgotten about what it was like on Hearts of Fire or maybe... He just lost interest real early and just wanted to get it done. Because there is a fun anecdote from Luke Wilson, who has a small role in the film, that he talked about on Conan O'Brien's show. And I'm going to play a clip from that here. How did you come to work with Bob Dylan? Um, had done this movie, uh, Masked and Anonymous, that he and Larry Charles did. And just kind of this odd movie that had all these different people in it and I just kind of played his roadie. You know, I can't even imagine uh, first of all, like Bob Dylan being in a movie acting. What's it like when you're when you're, when you're working with, because he's such a mysterious figure, he's so enigmatic. What's yeah. he like? He, he is. He's incredible. I, there was one scene that I was doing where it was Jeff Bridges and me and Dylan and and Jeff Bridges is very actorly, kind of in a good way. I mean, yeah. obviously he's a thoughtful actor. Yeah, very yeah. thoughtful. And uh, the director said, 
So Jeff, when the scene ends, you know, you go out the door. And Jeff kind of like scratched his, and it is also kind of like watching the dude. So yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, man, yeah. So, so, so why do I go out the door? And Dylan was like, because it's a dome. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, come on, Jeff. Leave this guy. Why do I, because it's a I look at your Bob Dylan. It's, oh, it's I, immediate, a door. I immediately sided with Dylan. Like, look at Bridges over here. I don't know why I go out the door. Because it's a door. It's a door, man. Yeah. I love that anecdote because that, to me, exemplifies Bob's relationship with Hollywood. You know, you have this actor trying to figure out motivation and shit, and Bob's looking at the script like, "Hey, how can we get this scene done? I want to get the fuck out of here." <laughs> I think it might, it might even be more directly just his attitude towards life. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like, I think, again, I, I, like a lot of times I feel like people try to ascribe motivations to Dylan like the person. They're just not there. It's like, why am I going to go through the door? It's like, because that's what you do with doors. Do you say th- door. <laughs> do you think if you were Bob in that spot, you would have said anything different? Because oh. I would have said the same fucking love- thing. Yeah. Like I could see, I could see you asking me this if if you, if you want me to go out the window, but no, oh. it's a door. That's what people do with doors. Like, yeah. Okay. We've gone on way too much about masked and anonymous. Real quick, what did you think of the soundtrack on that movie? There's some cool like foreign language covers of Dylan songs. Yeah, that I, I would like to. Yeah, there's some cool covers on that for sure. That I didn't know that aspect about the soundtrack before watching the movie. So like picking up on that movie, like quarter of the way through or whatever was very cool i was not expecting that and hearing those versions was just like oh that's pretty clever yeah there's like a japanese language version of my back pages okay and then my final thought is i will say it was a funny visual seeing bob pop his head out of the jail he was in <laughs> in the pit and then hanging the, out with yeah right that yeah, was that was genuinely funny yeah. at the start of the movie so I will give the movie that okay so let's fast forward to the next year let's go into March 2004 this is not significant for most people but it is for at least you because that's the first time you saw Bob in concert now I asked you about this experience in our Heaven's Door podcast So, I'm going to ask you about it again here, and let's see if we can focus on the actual concert. Because you told the funny story about going with your buddy and pushing your way to the front. What do you remember about the visual of Bob on stage, the songs he played, how he sounded, and what you felt through the show? So, honestly, not a lot. And what I will say is this. What I do remember is this. He came out, and this is a childhood idol of mine. Yeah. And he was small. And he was old and he was frail and he was almost impossible to understand. Like, oh, and I was a big fan and like the songs he was playing, I should have recognized, but the arrangements and his vocals, it was difficult to even understand what song he was performing. I imagine that was pretty frustrating. It was really frustrating for me. Yeah. A little Cause, bit. Because you were up front too. So you should have been yeah. able to hear clear. Wow. Any awesome moments, any positives, or was it just totally a drag? I think after the first couple songs, it almost would have been impossible for me to really, like, have any moment like that. It honestly, like, I have a buddy, like, he's like, what songs is it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, 
subsequently has not been that bad. But uh, yeah, for that first experience, it was it, it kind of ruined me for Dylan as a live artist, which as we know now, like I mean, that's kind of where his wheelhouse is. He's a wonderful live artist, and he reinterprets his music. But at the time, it was kind of like, oh, I'll just I guess I'll never see him live again. Did he acknowledge the crowd at any point? He may actually may have okay. when he first came out. Okay. And if you ask the woman who was standing to the left of me, <laughs> he was singing directly to her. So right. That was, that, I remember that very well. Which is pretty wild because you're standing there right next to her. It, it should have felt like he was singing directly to you. She had on a red velvet uh, coat. And she said that it was given to her by Bob Dylan. Of course. I don't I don't know that I believe John. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, that won't be our only Bob concert review on this series. We will get to two others a little bit later. I want to move forward a couple of years to May 2006, which marked the launch of the Theme Time Radio Hour, which was a weekly satellite radio show that Bob hosted. This is Theme Time Radio Hour with your host, Bob Dylan. Welcome to Season 3 of Theme Time Radio Hour, and we're glad to have you. We've had a lot of fun in the last couple of years, presenting the greats and near greats, the fondly remembered and the almost forgotten, performing a wide variety of music on a veritable cornucopia of subjects. Each episode was basically a theme, and Bob would pick songs from old, traditional Americana music that matched said theme. Now, I haven't listened to a lot of this. I listened to one that he put out two years ago that coincided with his Heaven's Door uh, whiskey. This was called the Whiskey Episode, so this was sort of a revival episode. He hadn't done the Theme Time Radio Hour in, in like 10 years. And I listened to that episode. It was two hours long. I listened to it on a car ride home from somewhere, and I thought it was just fucking great even though i didn't know a single song he played i thought he was a funny engaging host he came off as really charming he displayed some really good knowledge of the music he was talking about and it wasn't totally just oldies you know there was some stuff that would have been contemporary for his era and it was just a nice mix of music was that something that you ever listened to either at the time or since? No. I started listening to it a little bit when we started doing this podcast. Oh, okay. I agree. I really like it. It reminds me a lot of Little Steven's Underground Garage. Oh, okay. Big time. Because he picks a, a theme and kind of goes with it. The music's different that they play, obviously. Uh, you know, the emphasis is and on Dylan's is more traditional forms. I like it a lot. He's a good storyteller. I mean, we know that, right? And it works. The format works really well. What it most reminds me of is not actually radio. It reminds me of the first chapter of his book Chronicles, Volume 1, which had been released just a couple years before the show launched. His first chapter in Chronicles covers his first couple years in New York, where he's getting himself established in New York, gets himself a record deal, but like, it doesn't focus on the recording sessions. It focuses on like how he found all this music and what m music moves him. And honestly, that first section reads almost like an encyclopedia of traditional Americana music. And that's what showed me how knowledgeable he is about just that music. And I think this radio show might have been an extension of that. Let's talk about Chronicles for a little bit. We've obviously touched on it in each of our last couple of episodes because he has a chapter on a record in the 60s, 
record in the 70s, record in the 80s. Did you read Chronicles when it came out in 04? I did. Okay. What do you think of it then, and uh, have you read it since? I have not read it since. I I liked it at the time. I think anyone who's looking for a, a more straightforward autobiography will be disappointed. It's very much just surrounding the music and the production of his music, and there's not a ton of... And like your, to your point, he does but the kind of decade to decade. Mm-hmm. It's it, it jumps around a bit too. It does give some good insights into some of the artists that he really appreciates. I was surprised to learn how much he loves Gordon Lightfoot. Oh yeah. What I dig about the book is that it's little insights, it's glimpses into his psyche, and I think the ask of him writing a full on memoirs from start to finish would be one in, impossible for him and the life he's had, and two, it might honestly ruin the legend. It might take the magic away. If you want to know the nitty-gritty details about Bob, there are biographies. I've talked about two of them, Behind the Shades and, and Down the Highway. If you want an encyclopedic knowledge of Bob's life, get those books. But if you want insight into how he thinks and some of his experiences and brief periods of time, that's a really cool book yeah. for that. And if you enjoyed Chronicles Volume 1, it's unfortunately titled because... There was supposed to be a volume two, but that is never coming. Do you think it's funnier or unfortunate that he chose to put volume one on it? I hope he releases it and he calls it volume three. Oh. Traveling Wilbury style. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> no, but we're not getting volume two, volume three, or volume anything. He has said that he did not enjoy the writing process. Or he enjoyed the writing process, but he did not enjoy the editing process. And that, I think, is really common and very understandable. So let's get back to some of his actual music. In August 2006, he puts out an album called Modern Times. I think this is my favorite album of his from this decade. A song called Someday Baby is the only single. Of course, it didn't chart. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you say. I don't care where you go or how long. Someday, baby, you ain't gonna work for me anymore. That's one I think you mentioned you like. Like it a lot, yeah. My favorite song from this album is called Thunder on the Mountain. Let's talk about uh, the tracks you like, and then I'm gonna dive into two others that I enjoy. So, I'm not as big of a fan, actually, and I know... That puts me down with most critics. I think this is the one that was the, the most critically acclaimed of all the, the albums he put out at the time period. For me, Standouts, Someday Baby, and also I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Ain't Talking. Oh, okay. Love that song. So there is a song on this album called Working Man's Blues Number no. 2. Maybe at the bottom, don't lag behind. Bring me my boots and shoes. You can hang back or fight your best on the front line. Sing a little bit of these working And this song is interesting because it's a sort of tribute to Merle Haggard's 1969 Working Man Blues. I've drank my beer in a tavern, sang a little bit of these working man blues. And Bob and Merle toured together briefly in 2005, so I have to wonder if Merle was sort of on Bob's mind around this time. And in 2007, Merle was asked about the song, and he responded, quote, I said, good. That gives me a reason to do Blowing in the Wind number two. That's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) I like Merle Hager. I like Merle Hager quite a bit. (laughs) 
honestly, I bet that 2005 tour with those two guys would have been awesome. Oh, yeah. So Merle would eventually cover Don't Think Twice, It's All Right in 2015 on an album he made with Willie Nelson called Django and Jimmy. When you're roosting, crows at the break of dawn, look out your window, I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on. Don't think twice, it's all right. Another track on the record that classic rock fans might recognize is he did The Levee's Gonna Break. If it keep on raining, the levee gonna break. If it keep on raining, the levee gonna break. Everybody's saying this is a day only the Lord could make. Which is an Americana traditional. And yes, it is adapted from that same song that Zeppelin drew from for their famous When the Levee Breaks. And sounds nothing like the Zeppelin version. Correct. I mean, unrecognizable. (laughs) That's even the same piece that he was pulling from. Absolutely wild of how divergent two songs from the same original can be. But very cool on that note. I mean, to be fair, like, that was the big thing with Modern Times is that, like, Dylan got into a lot of hot water over his adapting without crediting a lot of this. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, controversy about that and he didn't push back too hard about it. It doesn't seem very controversial to him. Shakespeare stole from everybody. Sure. Nobody craps on Shakespeare for stealing from literally everybody. Mm-hmm. I feel like if, if you adapt something and you, you do it well, maybe you do it better even than the original version. Like, What's the problem? Well, money would be the problem, I think. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody getting money for the tradi- for, That's the, for right. American traditional, like when the levees break, or for the stuff that he adapted, a someday baby from, or anything else. Like nobody's making money on that. Well, doesn't this sort of remind us of uh, what happened on that first album where he did House of the Rising Sun? That was Dave Van Ronk's. Well, that's a little different because Dave Ronk was alive. Right. But again, I think you're coming from a tradition where I feel like there was a lot of borrowing of works and, and even arrangements. And I just feel like his idea is like the art is what it is. Money messes up everything. Sure does. <laughs> That'd be a great title for a Dylan song. All right. Let's talk about another movie very quickly because I didn't see this one. I think you've seen it. It's called I'm Not There. It was released in 2007. You just want me to say what you want me to say. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. People call, say it be. All they want from me is finger point socks. I only got ten fingers. I'm kidding you. It's not about me anymore, it's all about him. How does it feel? That's nature's will, and I'm against nature. How does it feel? The only reason people know this movie at all is because the character, Bob Dylan, is the central part of the film. And Bob, in the movie, is played by multiple different actors, including a female actor whose name I cannot think of because, again, I did not see this movie. Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. Okay. Who looks probably the most like Bob Dylan when she's all... Oh, I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. They actually physically look the most alike, and he's got kind of that wispy kind of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, more of a commentary on his appearance than hers. Absolutely. No, not, she's not, a not. woman. That's not I'm trying, trying to say anything about Kate Blanchett. Yeah. For sure. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, I, well, I watched it in anticipation of this and fell asleep <laughs> about three quarters of the way through it. Because it's, it's not... 
way better reviews than Aston Anonymous. And I feel like at least one has is identifiable as like its own voice. I'm not there. I don't know what I'm even trying to watch here. It's- yeah, I uh, saw that Bob was not involved with this one at all, and I just felt like, okay, this is more just adulation in a format that is meant to be more respectable than just like, I don't know, like a tribute album or something. You know, it's just, it's... it's Conceptually, it's weird. There's like, they don't use the name Bob Dylan, I don't think, throughout the entire movie. They okay. use different pseudonyms. And they have like yeah, I guess like the idea is like they have like a, like a young African American boy for his childhood. Okay. They have Kate Blanchett for a certain period for his older years. They have um, oh, what's his name? Um, Gerbil guy. <laughs> Richard Gear. Richard Gear. <laughs> <go>. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Joe. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Don't edit that. You leave that in. Yeah, there. leave that in for that's sure. A little, that's a gift for you and your audience. <laughs> Yeah, this whole segment. Anyways. Yeah, not a strong film. Not a strong film. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the criticisms of Artie Farty that are directed at Masked Anonymous, you feel are better fit for this one? Yeah. And I, the only thing I would like, it's weird. It comes off more of a vanity project, I think, than Masked Anonymous, despite oh. the fact that Dylan had no involvement. Oh, in that's it. funny. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. So we're getting close to the end of the decade here. April 2009, Bob releases his third album of the 2000s. This is called Together Through Life. The singles off this one are Beyond Here Lies Nothing and I Can Feel a Change Coming On. Now, I noticed on this one, his vocals are a little rougher and a little raspier than the two previous albums. And I think I was enjoying those two previous albums because his vocals were pretty solid. I thought the track It's All Good was pretty funny. <laughs> brick by brick, they tear you down. A teacup of water is enough to drown. You ought to know if they could, they would. Whatever going down, it's all good. And I also enjoyed the song If You Ever Go to Houston. It's a good one. Life is hard is not bad. I, I like again. I don't think he made a lot of bad music in this time period. Life is hard is one of those quintessential Dylan titles. Yeah. Yes, just like things have changed. Unlike Jolene, which is a weird, weird flex. <laughs> yeah, I, I made a note of that. Why do you think he did that? He wrote a song called Jolene, and I thought like, oh shit, he did a cover of Merle Haggard song in the album before, and now he's gonna maybe pay some tribute to Dolly Parton, which is not inappropriate. She's an American treasure. And then this song has nothing to do with her iconic song, Jolene. Very weird, right? I have no idea what he was thinking. (laughs) Just kind of weird. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do Jolene. (laughs) But not that Jolene. (laughs) Jolene. This was the tour that you and I saw him on. The tour to support Together Through Life in July 2009. We saw Bob at Summerfest. So what I remember about seeing that show is that we drank quite a bit before the show. (laughs) We? You know, you certainly had more than me. But this was a tour that he was doing with Willie Nelson and also John Mellencamp and every other venue on the tour except us got John Mellencamp. And Mellencamp was the one I was, like, interested in seeing at the time. At the time. So I was sort of, like, annoyed by that. But anyway. Do you stand by that now? Where it's like, Mel- uh, Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, and John Mellencamp. Mellencamp, so it's like, that's the one I... 
I mean, from what I remember of Willie's performance, I would have swapped him out for Mellencamp in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's fair. Because Willie Nelson was, and I love him as a person, but he was so fucking boring. I saw well, people sleeping. We were in the lawn seats. We saw well, people sleeping you saw while me he played. Sleeping. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> that was <laughs> put in quotes. Sleeping. Right? Yeah. So we go to see Bob together. We didn't have to pay very much to get in. I remember we had to be in, like, lines to get wristbands. Yeah, well, we were poor, Joe. We were yes, in that's correct. We didn't have money to pay <laughs> to get the bleachers or even better seats. Yeah. So when it came time for Dylan to perform, the Jumbotron was turned off mm-hmm. so that we could just hear Dylan. And I remember walking up to the booth and I asked them, we go, hey, what's going on with the Jumbotron? They're like, oh, the artist, had, we were told to, to let people know if they asked. The artist has said that they don't want to have the Jumbotron on so that you can experience the music instead of seeing them. <laughs> and I remember just thinking to myself, like, wait, what? I've never heard yeah. that before. Then why would you even amplify the music? Just play your music to a group of 30 people, but don't, like, pretend and then sell tickets for people who are two football fields away. <laughs> I don't know. We did not have any visuals on him. Like, I brought my camera or my cell phone, you know, which was sort of prehistoric even then, but I didn't get a single good photo of him. I got a couple of fun pictures of us on the lawn, and people were, of course, walking around not paying attention to him. Like I said, we saw people napping while he was playing. When Bob finally came on, what I remember is uh, the experience you talked about the first time you see him where, like, I didn't know a single song until we got to the end where I remember I recognized something and I nudged you. I'm like, what song is this? And you're like, it's all along the Watchtower. And it was just like, oh, now I hear it. Okay, okay. And then after that, I think the encore was like a Rolling Stone. And that was cool because I recall that being a big amphitheater-wide sing-along. And that was a nice experience. But it was a long day to get to that moment. To be fair, his... his pronouncing things and the ability to understand them it was was improved from the first time I saw him. Okay, yeah. For me, it was just interesting how just wildly different my two first concerts for Dylan were from one another. Yeah. Where it's the first time so close and it just becomes clear like this is a small, frail, weird little man. Yeah. And then the second it's like I'm so far away that I'm pissed that I can't even see the guy. <laughs> like it was just such a bizarre, probably neither is even true. Probably both are kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is is his live reputation has come back to be very positive in recent years. But if you look up reviews from this era, the 2000s, not a lot of good reviews. I looked up our local reviews for this show, and it was all very negative. It was all very meh, like unimpressed. And I think maybe people just didn't appreciate that they're not guaranteed to have him forever. Because I think a lot of the celebration for him now is the fact that, like, he's 80 and he's still touring and he's putting on good performances now. And people are like, oh, can you believe this? Well, they weren't saying that when he was in his 60s. Well, if you're not taken by our reviews of his live shows in this time, don't worry. Come back to our next episode. We will have some good news because we did see him recently and we can talk about a very positive experience. Then. Wonderful. But you'll have to wait until then. All right, I want to cover a story that is just absolutely hilarious and is something that could only happen to Bob, I think. Mm -hmm. He's just, it speaks to his personality. Okay, so three weeks after we saw him at Summerfest, Bob was arrested in New Jersey by a police officer named Christy Bubble. So it was pouring rain, and Bob is out in the rain, walking alone, 
in some neighborhood that was way out of the way from where his entourage and tour buses are. He apparently wandered into the yard of a home that had a for sale sign on it. And the home's occupants became spooked by his appearance and called police with a report of a, quote, eccentric-looking old man in their yard. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the occupants even went so far as to follow Bob as he continued down the street. So this officer, Bubble, said, quote, We got a call for a suspicious person. It was pouring rain outside, and I was right around the corner, so I responded. By that time, he was walking down the street. I asked him what he was doing in the neighborhood, and he said he was looking at a house for sale. She continued. I asked him what his name was, and he said, Bob Dylan. Now, I've seen pictures of Bob Dylan from a long time ago, and he didn't look like Bob Dylan to me at all. He was wearing black sweatpants tucked into black rain boots and two raincoats with the hood pulled down over his head. We see a lot of people on our beat, and I wasn't sure if he came from one of the hospitals or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. That's great. That's great. And, you know, it's sort of a great story because what are we just talking about? We couldn't see the guy, right? He's intentionally hiding himself on stage and photos of him are actually sort of rare. When she says, I'd seen pictures of him from a long time ago, that sort of tracks because like, I don't know, if you asked Bob Dylan's office for a headshot, they might send you something from 1970, you know? It's bizarre that the police were involved, one, and two, like, that they actually harassed the guy. Is it weird because... Also the... that he was looking at... He was also... That he was earnestly looking at home <laughs> just in, like, this random sub- suburb of New Jersey. But, yeah. Uh, that's weird, too. But, I mean, maybe because it was raining, and they're like, what is someone doing out in the rain? I go for walks in the rain all the time. Okay. I don't, I don't know. So, she asks Bob for identification, and here's the weird point. Bob says he had none. So she asked him where he was staying, and he said his tour buses were parked at uh, some big hotel back by the ocean. So the officer assumed that to be the nearby Ocean Place Conference Resort. She said, quote, he was acting very suspicious. Not delusional, just suspicious. You know, it was pouring rain and everything. That's a wild quote in a in a different way. Like, what the fuck does that mean? He was acting suspicious. Not delusional. It's a good thing it wasn't Richie Havens, is all I'm saying. Uh, (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) If it was Richie Havens, if it was not a white person, would this officer take him at his word enough so that she actually drove him to the conference center and checked with the tour bus to see if it was actually Bob? Candidly, like... The, the fact that he's even getting picked up at all and, like, questioned, to me, is ridiculous. I just think, oh, like, okay. you know, you should be able to walk in right. the rain. Oh. oh, how dare you? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, the quote, he was acting very suspicious. Suspicious of what? Yeah. You know, there's no implication. It was raining. Of, yeah, there, there's no implication like, of any sort of crime. Like, what, vagrancy? And you know? looking at a house that has a for sale sign. Yeah. This is bizarre. I mean, it definitely reflects a lot worse on the New Jersey police. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) But it, I mean, it reflects just weirdly, I guess, on Bob. Because it makes me think, is this what he does? I think so. (laughs) Is, like, this 
his pastime when he's out and about on tour. Do you remember when Mick Jagger was going uh, on the Rolling Stones tour and he was getting all these like undercover photos where he'd be at a bar and nobody recognized yes. him? You know, and he, it was all very cute because it's like, oh, it's Mick, but nobody knows you know where he is and no one expects him to be there and he's having a little bit of fun. It's all very tongue in cheek. Bob wasn't doing that no. shit. Bob's just creeping around. I don't think he's creeping. I think what he's doing is he's looking for houses to purchase for, like, one of his, like, six secret families that he has. <laughs> yes, this'll do. Yeah, this is good. They're, they're like, family A will love New Jersey. He's in Milwaukee, same thing. Baltimore, Cincy. He's going across the... Oh, good Lord, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> Well, anyway, the story concludes with uh, the cop actually driving him to the hotel, checking with his team, and then apologizing and letting him go. You know, you just bring it up because it's just such a bizarre story. Like I said, could only happen to Bob, right? This would not be a Bruce Springsteen story. Like I was saying about Mick, Mick's going to do something cute if he's out and about, right? Bob is just doing his thing and does not want to be found out. I bet he got a good laugh out of getting arrested, though, (laughs) or taken into custody, I should say. Okay, this is actually the final topic before we wrap up here. His final album of the 2000s, released October 2009, just in time for the Christmas season, Christmas in the Heart. Yes. Finally, we've arrived at the thing that makes this our Christmas episode, okay? So I very vividly remember when you and I went out and got this CD, because... You were really trying to get me into Bob at this time, and we found out that he had a Christmas album coming out, and we both thought, like, oh, this will be sort of funny, because that's what everybody thought. When this was announced, everybody was like, what? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, so we went to a Super Walmart, grabbed the CD, go out to the car, and we just drove around listening to it, and do you remember just how hard we laughed when we heard him sing the first few words off Here Comes Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ran down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing and blixing and old as rain, yeah, pulling on the rain. So it's the most bizarre sort of juxtaposition of these very traditional arrangements for the song. Very traditional. And then his voice. His, what you called raspy. I mean, that's being kind. It's yeah. Raspy at this point. It was, uh, it was funny. And also, I kind of started liking it. This record cracks me up because, like, like you said, it, it's it's a very traditional arrangement. It's very beautiful production. Yeah. And when you're hearing some of these songs with the the instrumental part leading into the vocals, it sets a mood, and you're like waiting for like Johnny Mathis or Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra to start singing. And then yeah. Bob gargles out these lyrics, and the contrast becomes just hilarious. Yeah. And all you can do is laugh. Now, once you're used to it, and you've listened to it a couple of times, it stops becoming just a total joke. I really do like a couple of songs off this album. They are on my Christmas playlist. There is some beauty to, I guess, that contrast. Well, also, like you mentioned, like a Dean Martin or like a Sinatra. I love the Dean Martin Christmas album. Sure. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. They still feel kind of like throwaway. There's no real 
emotion behind Dino's voice. Absolutely. Dylan, it feels like this is coming from a very real place for Dylan. You know, you get the sense that he really is earnest in his delivery. I would say that's even true for a song like the single off the album is Must Be Santa. They did a music video for that. That is a fun song, and I think you can actually pick up on Bob having some fun singing it. Yes. Now, the funniest part of that song for us is what I remember when we first heard that in the car. Bob is singing very quickly, right? And the visual that we came up with is that Bob would sing a verse and then lean off mic and grab an oxygen mask (laughs) (laughs) and huff oxygen as as he can and then immediately jump back on for the next string of lyrics. Who's got to be this long and white? Who's got to be this long and white? Who comes around a special night? Special night with this white must be Santa, must be Santa, must be Santa, Santa Claus. <laughs> and that's probably what happened. <laughs> It's a good music video. Do you remember the Must Be Santa video? Where oh, it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, Christmas party, you know, Bob's there wearing a top hat and, like, flat gray hair or whatever, and then then it ends up being, like, a big fight in the video where all the guests the are... like, stealing something or something? I don't know. Like, yeah. Like, guy there that's, like, and they're chasing him out. Yeah, it's, uh... I thought it's his most fun video. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. I think the only one that stuck out as, like, bad is... You can hear him struggling on Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I think maybe he just should have picked a different song. Yeah, it vocally it just doesn't hold up. Yeah. What do you think about some of the tracks that I have not touched on yet? Well, I think we, we said it that first night, I'll be home for Christmas. Vocally, it's fine, but there are strong, like, Cape Fear vibes from that. <laughs> Where it doesn't feel so much as like a hopeful, like, I'm going to make it home for Christmas. It's like, I'll be home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and milk. So tell and presents on the tree. Like you have a new family, I'm breaking out of the pen, I'm coming to your house, and I will be home for Christmas. Oh. That's how I feel like he his rendition of the song, that's that's what he's going for, maybe. Yeah, like a Christmas-themed horror movie. That would be the soundtrack too. Yeah. So I think there is layers of fun you can have with this. Like at first listen. Embrace the comedy of it. Just lean in, acknowledge it's a little ridiculous, laugh about it, make some jokes, but then give yourself a few re-listens, let it sink in a little deeper. If you're a Bob fan, and if you like Christmas music at all, and I know that's just a sticking point for a lot of people. If you don't like Christmas music, of course not. Oh, yes. But if you like Christmas music, I think some of this is going to work for you. I'd also say, like, I feel like Christmas, in general, is not the most tasteful season. And I, yeah. I, it's the only time of year I really truly embrace that. I'm like really kind of like I like tacky stuff during Christmas. This is not tacky, but like to your point, there's layers to it. Yeah, it's in my top five Christmas albums. I play it multiple times every year. My son, who is six years old, loves it. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. Must be Santa, especially. Absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully, you showed him the video. And one just positive, you know, we can give Bob credit for is that Dylan's royalties for this album were all donated to the charities Feeding America in the United States and also a UK charity and the UN Food Program. 
So this did raise some money for good causes. You know, give him props for that. And in a interview he did in 2009, he said, quote, There wasn't any other way to play it. These songs are a part of my life, just like folk songs. You have to play them straight, too. We're having some fun at his expense, but this wasn't a joke project to him. I don't want to be totally disrespectful about it. He played it straight. He's presenting music. That means something to him. Christmas songs are part of the great American tradition of music, so it fits very well in his discography. It just took us some time to figure that out because, again, when we all first heard about it, what? A Christmas album. But I think it works. I, I'm glad he did it. Any final thoughts on Christmas in the Heart? Yeah, just love the album. Okay. Now, I wonder if you love any of these. You know, I always like to touch on high-profile covers of his work from the decade. I wonder if you know any of these songs. Rage Against the Machine covered Maggie's Farm on their 2000 album, Renegades. Are you yeah. aware of that version? Yeah, I love Rage. Yep. Good album. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's Farm no more. No, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. Uh, that's the worst song on the album. Sure, yeah, I it's am a not a fan. Our rap rock, first of all, rap rock is, with the exception of Rage, terrible music. <laughs> yep. But uh, that song does not play well. <laughs> Do you think they were trying a little too hard to force parallels? Like, yeah, we're we're the Bob of this generation. Maybe. I also think Zach De La Rocca, if I remember the song right, it's been a while since I really listened to their cover album, but it leans really heavy into the, oh, come on. Okay. <laughs> that specific song. So yeah. Okay. a lot of that. Sure. Okay. So to not. Fill, to fill space. You know, you gotta, yeah. Of course. Make it work. Gotta make those grunts. Yeah. Okay. In 2003, an album called Gotta Serve Somebody, the gospel songs of Bob Dylan was released. Dylan actually appears on this project. He performs a duet with Mavis Staples on a song called Gonna Change My Way of Thinking, but with some new lyrics. The sun is shining, one train on his track. Well, well, well. The sun is shining, one train on his track. Now, him and Mavis have had a long friendship pseudo relationship going back to like the 60s i think it's very nice that they were able to do a song together i bet both of them really enjoyed that process are you familiar with this record nope okay well you might want to check it out because it's say it's the the gospel tracks interesting project that's that's all i would say about it and then finally adele covers make you feel my love on her 2008 debut album 19. I go hungry, I go black and blue. I go crawling down the avenue. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. That is the same song that Garth Brooks covered. Yeah. And one like a Grammy for that we talked about last time. So that's a compliment to the staying power of that song, right? Yes, but I would say Adele's cover is far more successful than Garth Brooks' cover. <laughs> I would say, like, I think we mentioned in the first podcast, I think that version of that is one of the few versions of a Dylan song. I really prefer the cover version to the Dylan version. I thought you liked the Garth Brooks version. I don't hate it. Okay, you don't it's like... It's a great song. You don't like the Billy Joel version. Billy Joel version is, is a trap. 
crime against nature. It should not exist. Fair enough. Adele covering this on her first album is, that's quite a compliment given what a force of nature she's become in the last 10 years. So interesting to see that. All right, let's wrap this up. Let's talk about our favorites from this era. And I am happy to say I am not going into this segment kicking and screaming like I was in our last episode. (laughs) Do you want to just put the albums in order or do you just give a thumbs up to all four? I think just give a thumbs up. Yeah, I would say There's the same. There's so few. Yeah, the output's small, I think, yeah. Just give a thumbs up. Okay, then why don't you tell me your, in no particular order, top five favorite songs of Bob Dylan's from the 2000s. Yeah, so I think Twiddledee, Twiddledum, Mississippi, Someday Baby, Beyond Here Lies Nothing, and uh, Things Have Changed. Very good. And I'm happy to say we have one in common. I will also say Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And then my other four are Thunder on the Mountain, Rollin' and Tumblin', Working Man's Blues Number 2, and If You Ever Go to Houston. Things have changed. It didn't do it for you at all, huh? I would say that would be in the top ten. Too dark for you. No, no, not too dark. Well, what I like about it is that it feels like a sort of sequel to the times they are a-changin'. Oh. It feels like... One's hopeful. Yeah. And now here we are all these years later, and I know it's a stretch. I know no, it's just I... a couple of words in common, but I think there's a interesting connection there thematically. No, I dig that. Okay. One's very hopeful. It's all about get, her, get out of the way. As he's a young we're, man. We're change, and then the, the next one is, uh, the bookend is, uh, yeah, I used to care. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. A, a different perspective from an older man at this point of his career. But So I, I like that song, and I really like that music video. So would I say number six? Yeah, why not? Certainly top ten. I do like the church. Sure. Okay. So looking forward... The finale, at least for now, of this miniseries is going to be Dylan Through the Decades Part 6, Bob Dylan in the 2010s, in which we'll talk about all the albums from the last decade, including what he did in 2020 and including the show we saw him do in 2021. Otherwise, fans of this show can look forward to an episode about the Starship, which will conclude my mini-series on the Jefferson Airplane family tree. And you can also look forward to an interview I have coming up with former Starship vocalist Stephanie Calvert. I can confirm we'll be doing that. That'll come after the Starship episode. For this episode, I need to cite Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan, the new updated version by Howard Sunez. That's my pick for best book about Bob. And with that, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. This was a joy. Thank you for having me, as always. Absolutely. Looking forward to our next one. And then who knows what fun podcasting adventures will go on in the future. But until then, we will have Tweedledee and Tweedledum play us out as it's appropriate as it's Tweedledee and Tweedledum sitting right here in the studio. (laughs) So thanks again, Chris. Play us out, Bob. Neither one's gonna turn around They're making a voice to the song His master's voice is calling me Hey, thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. Well, a childish dream is a deathless dream, and a noble truth is a sacred dream. My pretty baby, she's looking around. She's wearing a multi-thousand-dollar gown. Really needs a lowdown, sorry old man. Really dumb, you'll stab you where you stand. Too much of your company